Hey, Graham. How you doing? I am doing okay. Um, how are you doing this week? Very good. Excellent. Things are good here in Tokyo. How about what's Bangkok? The, what's the temperature there? Oh, it does start. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> well, you know, this week we've hovered above. We've hovered above uh, zero at the minimum. And it's... <laughs> we've hovered around the same area, just 22 degrees above zero. Oh, no. So that's what I wanted. That's what I want to tell you. It, today... Yeah, I'm sure, you're, I'm sure you're really... I'm glad you're not sitting next to me. I'm glad. Um, <laughs> today, the, the low is 22. The high is probably 28. So this is this is when you really want to be in Bangkok. The end of December, all of February, really, and then a little bit of March. It's just spectacular here. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm used to these colder climbs, you see. So I'm hardy. I'm of hardier stock. North European stock. So I'm used to this cold weather. I know. I was used to it too when I was living in Tokyo, but I think I've had just enough of it. I'm wow. glad I don't have to deal with it anymore. Hey, I wanted to make sure you could hear me okay. You, hear, you sound great. What's going on? Have you changed your audio setup? I have upped my game, I think. What do you got? <laughs> Based on some friends' recommendations and a little bit of research, I am now plugged into my computer via a little device called a Focusrite. What's that? I don't know. I think it's more like a, it's like a little amp and I've connected, I believe it's an XLR microphone. Oh, into right. it. Yeah. So this is made by the company called Rode. They make something yeah. called the Rode Podcaster, but it's Rode microphones. And this is the NT1A. Nice. So you've got a, like a little mixer where you're mixing your, yes, your, a proper XLR mic into yes. that. And then it goes into your USB port. Yes, and actually, this week I was not prepared enough, but next week, and I've been testing this for a while, and I'll tell you a little bit about that in a second as well, but I wasn't prepared enough, but what I really wanted to do was I wanted to record separate tracks, because up until now, we've just been recording on the same track, I'm guessing. Yeah, and then splitting it. And then splitting it, and I'd like to try, maybe next week, doing separate tracks and then maybe combining them if, if we think we can handle that. I just, someone has mentioned to me and just some reading I've done says that that creates a better sound. Let's give it a go. The microphone <laughs> is the most important thing though. Having a good quality mic is where it's at, right? So, what, what, what do you use? I've got a, a Yeti blue mic, which is, okay. it's kind of, it's a USB mic, but it's expensive for USB mics. a big heavy yeah. thing that sits on this big fat bass on my desk and I've got a pop screen as well so do I so yeah I mean I like it it gives me the best sort of I mean it sort of gives you a good range I mean I've tested them all you know I've tested all different kinds of mics and this one was the best for me so yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I went with a buddy of mine and I also we'll get back to this in a second too but I went with a buddy of mine who does his own podcasting and recording a lot of he does a lot of video stuff too and he highly recommended this it also turns out that my daughter has her own YouTube channel hmm. and she does a bunch of stuff and she was begging me to get a mic. So I, I basically got this for me and for her. Right. Wow. So you're and not going to see that again. <laughs> well, this was a deal. My, my daughter, I mean, we've, we talked about this a little bit offline, but my daughter is just like the greatest kid in the whole world. And she just, she doesn't do anything wrong. Like I'm really afraid one day you know, it's going to be tattoos, nose rings and, um, and drugs and stuff. But so far it's been... You know, no pushing of the edges, close to the edges, but she's really great. And she, her friend recommended this NT1A, and she's been recording singing and some of her own sort of podcasting as well, and it's been good for her, and I just want to try it out and see if it was good for me. Wow. It's amazing, just on the side, how these kids are taking to YouTube. I mean, my 10-year-old son has already got his YouTube channel up and running. Right. And it's just that they discover, I mean... Your daughter's a teenager, right? I mean, they discover everything through YouTube these days. Music, like any kind of TV show through YouTube. And they're sort of, you know, I think it's probably for them the most commonly used website, right? And there's people making good money, like kids making good money off these channels, right? Sure. It's amazing. Okay. They teach us a few things. So this, and this I find really interesting, and we can start talking about tech again in a second, but I thought this was really fascinating. My daughter, like, doesn't love studying science, right? right? And she wonders sometimes, we sit around the dinner table and she says, Michael, why? Why do I have to take a course in, like, chemistry? It doesn't make any sense to me. It's, this, it's the familiar refrain, right, for any kid, for every generation. When am I ever going to use this in my real right. life? Yeah. And the, re and the reality is that as a parent, 
there aren't a lot of good examples of when you're going to use chemistry. Cooking's a bad one because it in, it involves gender roles. And I don't want to really go down that path. But so one day my daughter says to me, I need to use the camera and I need to use the microphone because I'm going to film myself making slime. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, slime? What's slime? And she went through the whole explanation of what slime is. And she actually told me that she was buying ingredients for slime for, let's just call it 100 yen, and selling them for 180 yen. <laughs> and she also told me, That's the percent margin. Wow. That's Good the modern lemonade stand. Yeah, exactly. It's the modern lemonade stand. And I said to her, do you realize what you're doing when you're making slime? She goes, yeah, I'm just combining a bunch of stuff and making slime. I'm selling it and making a profit. What's the big deal? I said, you're doing chemistry. Right. <laughs> the only way to get it right is by combining the things in the right combination. All the chemicals react in a way. They can only happen if they're properly mixed. Right. And, you know, I got the eye rolling of a normal 15-year-old. Anyway, <laughs> I just thought it was interesting. But this all goes up on YouTube. It also goes on Instagram. She has a Snapchat channel. This is the reason for the conversation. And then, and then her friends, both at her school and at other schools in the city, text her and say, I want some of the blue stuff. I want the mixed green one or whatever it is. Right. And she goes out and buys the ingredients, comes home, makes it in her room, films it, and sells it. Wow. That's I awesome. love it. Well, what, what, so the, what a business to make it to cut your teeth on as well. But the great Slime. thing is that it's a business, right? So right, she right. sits there and says, like, I don't want to study chemistry. And the reality is she's yeah. studying chemistry. Yeah. It's better that way anyway. Um, but it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it has some kind of social motivation, doesn't it? I mean, it makes sense to the real world. Chemistry is so abstract that when you can actually see it and it actually makes sense and it has a difference to their friends' lives, right? You know, she's doing something for her friends and she's getting paid and she has some kind of significance. Compare sure. that to sort of, you know, acid plus base equals salt plus water, right? I mean, what the hell does that mean to the average I was kid? just going to say, I bet if I asked you, you would know the chemical makeup of salt. Right. Something you don't, you don't need to know. And I mean, water, obviously, everybody knows because it's just everywhere. But yeah. salt, you probably haven't, I mean, depending on what your background is, right, you're probably computer science or engineering, you, you probably don't remember your chemistry, but... Sodium is, chloride. Yeah, NaCl, right? Right. I actually got an A in chemistry, so... <laughs> yeah, I love, I <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because my dad, at a very at an early age, brought home a chemistry set when I must have been about nine or ten, and I just loved chemistry because he gave me all these things I could burn and explode what i was right. not allowed to do right <laughs> yeah like you were allowed to mess stuff up and everyone right. would go oh, he's doing chemistry over there exactly nobody cared yeah it's the way to learn i got an a in chemistry as well by the way i loved science so to me it was it was easy but some people just don't like the studying in the school part right right it's a bit like, I mean, you know, if you look at what goes on on YouTube, going back to that, there's a whole lot yeah. of science programs and not sort of done in traditional ways. But I mean, there's yeah. one that my son watched called the Crazy Russian Hacker. <laughs> right. There's a guy who just sort of has like, okay, now I will mix this sort of washing up liquid with bleach. Right, <laughs> you know, right, right. And then set fire to it. <laughs> and the kids love it, you know. But yeah, I mean, yeah. It's all good and, and I bet they're learning enough there. Right. I, I just think it's fine, actually. In a way, school itself... And we can talk about how tech in, in disintermediate school will do that on, on another episode, sure. particularly in Southeast Asia. But, you know, a lot of this tech stuff is going to disintermediate school. Yeah. Well, so so speaking, of, speaking about school, I wanted to make an equivalency, right? You don't hear people walking around saying, you know, this school in Singapore is going to be the next Oxford. Right. Do you? I, I don't know. I just don't think so. I think people are pretty satisfied that INSEAD is just a good school. Right. It doesn't need to be the next Oxford. And maybe it takes on some of the idiosyncrasies of the location where it was developed, but it doesn't need to be the next Oxford. Even in the United States, you know, there, no one says this is the next Harvard or we need to create another MIT. They just create Stanford or Berkeley. Right. Everyone's very happy with it. And no one says we're never going to have a great university in the Carolinas, which is due. And then the same thing about Georgia. We just have great Georgia Tech, all these great places. So why do I why do I bring this up? Well I was reading one of my, you know, 
standard sort of tech blogs about Southeast Asia. And there were a bunch of people visiting, I believe it was called, I just want to get this right, Innovation Weekend in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think a lot of innovation happens over a weekend, which is maybe why I'm not such a great fan of a hackathon, or maybe I'm just too silly to understand why they're super useful, but I guess they are. But anyway, at this particular event, you have really interesting people like Takeshi Ebihara, who I know really well. Um, he runs a company called Rebrite Partners. And actually one of my favorite people in maybe the global ecosystem for all you know, technologists but also tech pundits, a guy named Keith Tier. Hmm. Keith is a normal, a regular participant on the Gilmore Gang. I don't know if you know who Keith is. Yeah, yeah, I know the Gilmore Gang. Um, Keith is an English guy who's lived in San Francisco for a couple of decades, and he runs something called Archimedes Labs, so that's where he does all of his development. Keith is a very interesting guy. He's very insightful, and he doesn't have an axe to grind, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons why um, I like him so much. Mm. But the, the, the title of this article, again, a little clickbaitish, was Silicon Valley is no longer the biggest game in startup town, these investors say. Right, okay. So this gets back to what we what I just said, right? Like, why does it have to be a comparison between what's going on in Silicon Valley? Why does it need to be the next Harvard or the next Oxford? Mm -hmm. Why can't they just be satisfied that in China um, there was $37 billion of investment in startups, even though in the United States there was 59? So it's still more, mm -hmm. right? I just wonder what your opinion is on this, why people are always trying to say it's the next this or the newest right. that, or bigger than this or bigger than that. How much of it is sort of driven by governments as well? Because, I mean, there's always sort of, you know, we're going to create a silicon, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is in our town, right? It's a silicon glen, a silicon whatever. You know, it, they've always got their, I mean, their program. And I think they compare it to Silicon Valley, don't they? So, I mean, I don't know how much is sort of top-down driven. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't think it is at all. In other words, I think, here's the thing. I think people that maybe run accelerators or people that are trying to run co-working spaces try to sell themselves as, we're going to create an ecosystem here that rivals Silicon Valley or that's the next Silicon Valley. And, and to me, I think the more time you spend trying to be something else, the less time you are, the less time you're spending innovating and actually being something at all. Exactly. I mean, you take somewhere like Chiang Mai, as, as as I know, we're not looking at Silicon Valley comparisons there, but when you're talking mm -hmm. about creating an ecosystem, even in Bangkok around the co-working spaces, right? Yep. You know, they haven't gone out trying to create another Silicon Valley, and they've attracted a whole different bunch of entrepreneurs, haven't they? The people who don't want to play the Silicon Valley game, people who are sort of you know focused on that sort of location independent type business, and they've sort of all gravitated around Chiang Mai now. So yeah. I think they sort of created an ecosystem there without playing that game i wonder if that's the way to do it i think it is i really think it is like people used to talk a lot about how the thai government needs to and this is just because you brought up governments right how the thai government has to and i'll put it in quotes catch up to what the singapore government's doing which i think right, is, yeah. is silliness um because i don't think the u.s government does anything to foster necessarily except for maybe yeah. some arcane stuff in the tax code but to foster Silicon Valley, I think in the end, the world is just in a place where doing a startup company in tech um, is just the way things are going to go regardless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're right. Like what's going on in Chiang Mai is, is insanely good because it's just a bunch of people who want to live a good life. Hmm. Um, and they're just trying to develop really good products. Like to me, that's the way this should continue to go. And it's just interesting to me when I read stuff. I think it's mostly what I'll call sort of the, the silly press. <laughs> for lack of a better term, just trying to create, you know, clickbait and, and silly headlines. And, and I think if you actually look at what these people say, Silicon Valley is a great example of how to take something and make it into something really large. And if you do need a model, I'm not really a big fan of copying things per se, but if you need a model, it's not a bad model. I think the bottom line is you don't want to end up in a business of copying everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I don't think everything works the same in every place. And I, I just, headlines like this to me diminish actually what's going on in Southeast Asia. And as someone who's a big supporter of it, I don't think I want to measure myself or the entire ecosystem against any other one at all. And the pie out here is so big. 
and it's growing so fast. And, you know, pick a sector. We can talk about a different sector every week. But pick a sector, it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And to me, that's where the fun is. Not the, I'm not looking over my shoulder and trying to figure out if I'm as big as or as fast as or as strong as some other region. Right. I think that's fine, though, isn't it? I mean, you know, Silicon Valley will always be the valley. And the people who yeah. want to go and do their, you know, their startup accelerator type thing in, over in Y Combinator, they'll always pick Silicon Valley, right? Over everywhere else in the world, they'll you know they'll come from all over the world, and they do to go to these places, right? So yeah. I don't think you can compete. So you have to sort of think, well, what is it that we have here that's different? And Chiang Mai is an example, isn't it? And I think there's a, there's a different category of entrepreneur attracted to Southeast Asia and Asia generally. And I think you know that sort of comparison. There's always that thing going on about we've got to compare ourselves to Singapore because they're the the shiny example, aren't they? But yeah. there's a bit of jealousy there and a bit of uh, you know just sort of that bit of healthy rivalry as well. But at the same time, I don't know if it's helpful. You know, they've got to sort of think, well, what what do we have that Silicon Valley doesn't have? And let's sort of play on that advantage. It's the blue ocean stuff, isn't it? What sort of what's our strength, not what's our weakness here? Yeah, and I, I completely agree. And, and to be fair, you look at what's going on sometimes, this is going to feel a little bit off track, but like you look at what's going on in, in Dubai and they've kind of gone to Singapore and tried to copy some of the models there. So there's, you know, medical city and there's technology city and all these little things there. And again, sponsored by the government. I guess the difference there is there's just so much excess capital that they have to spend it on something. Right. You just wonder if that whole thing is going to sink into the sand in 50 years time, right? I can't see. I mean, you know, I know companies are moving out to Dubai, but. I mean, it's not like, I mean, Singapore is different because it has that sort of, you know, it's it's a perch for the rest of Asia. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not long on Dubai, but there you go. I'd rather have my money in Singapore than if I was well, to choose. Did you say you're not long on it or you're not in love with it or both? Both. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's a great place, but, you know, I mean, as a business, I can't really see the point of setting up in Dubai unless you actually wanted to target the Middle Eastern region, right? I mean, you know, medical city, sports city, all that cyber city, all that thing going on. I don't know. I like it where the government doesn't get involved. Yeah, I, 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 there's very little stuff there that's going on that I, that I like because none of it's organic. Yeah. Um, and in a place where 85% of the population is um, is not local, nothing there seems to make sense to me. But uh, we can talk about that at another time. Anyway, I thought this was I thought what came out of this innovation weekend, particularly the fact that it was held in Japan. I like the fact that it was sponsored by JAL, which I think is a real problem. It dovetails nicely with with what I want to talk about next. Right. Um, JAL. Not I don't want to talk about um, Japan Airlines, but just right. the fact that Japan Airlines is coming in to sponsor something called Innovation Weekend. I mean, right. man, not for nothing, but JAL is a company that's probably been reorganized more times than my sock drawer, and um, from a financial standpoint, and the last time it innovated on anything was I can't remember maybe they changed the font for JAL <laughs> a grand opening a grand renewal open of the font <laughs> I don't know maybe they changed the font on the katakana they're using for <laughs> smiles so I'm not sure you have to see the, the, the picture wow. um, we, we could go at length and talk about innovation in Japan but that's a very complicated subject but what do you okay it's interesting though what do you, uh, like I have my ideas about what I think complicates it but you brought it up what do you think complicates the innovation there alright so there's a couple of things. I mean, I've had this conversation a number of times with my Japanese friends here, oh. as well as expat entrepreneurs in the scene here. And two things. Firstly, something we touched on already about government-driven programs. I mean, as an example, I remember talking to a friend, I should say, and they were saying, oh, we're talking about female entrepreneurs in Japan. I just said there's not enough, right? You know, there should be a lot more female entrepreneurs, but, you know, it's going to take a long time for them to come through. And she, she was a female entrepreneur, said to me, oh, but the government's running this program to help female entrepreneurs. And I sort of thought, <laughs> well, that's the problem, right? It's because my my opinion, uh, maybe it's just my viewpoint, my viewpoint about technology innovation and entrepreneurialism in Asia generally is that it's going to flourish when governments sort of get out the way and they sort of clear the runway for the entrepreneurs to come and do their thing rather than, you know, everybody look to the government to do it for them, right? Which is kind of right. like, that's why you don't have this grassroots innovation where it should be here in Japan. And then, you know, the, the sort of the, the package with that is this JAL driving innovation weekends. You know, there's a whole bunch of these big corporates 
<laughs> where you know you go to these you go to these accelerator well they're not accelerated they're innovation weekends i've been to a number michael and you go along and what it is is you know it could be like the end of school award ceremony right and yeah. and they get up and the guy has his you know the oldest guy in the room gets up and does a speech you know and because yeah. <laughs> he's the chairman he's been the you know, chairman of jail for like 50 years he gets up and then then it, it the crescendo is where he hands a plaque over to this young guy who comes on stage and shakes hands and you know that's it and that's sort of like well you know this is as innovative as it gets and there's a bit where they have these mentors they so they have these sort of you know this innovation entrepreneurialism where they have innovation within the organization <laughs> and this is the funny bit is that they have these young guys who sort of you know they all want to be really successful startups they all want to be an uber or they all want to be a next facebook and they're they, they're really keen and they're up for it and they they join this program and then they get assigned a mentor from jow or kddi right. or whatever and that's yep. to me that's where it all goes wrong because what the <laughs> hell does this guy know about startups this guy's been a corporate guy for 20 years where he's kept his head he's kept his head down for 20 years and not made any mistakes and he's now his, advised, his oh. skill is just not messing it up exactly looking after his boss and not messing it up right so. <laughs> that's all he did for 20 years I don't know. I'm going off on one, so hold me back, Michael. But you asked me. You just wound me up there. This actually is exactly where I wanted to go today. All right. I know it feels like a little roundabout. This is exactly where I wanted to go. Okay. So I used to work at Deutsche Bank. And Deutsche Bank was one of the hardest places in the world to get something new done. We want to talk about a place where there were legacy systems everywhere. This was the place. And I think it's, it's a metaphor, actually, for the rest of you know, global financial banks or, or investment banks. And I laughed last year, sort of to the middle of last year, when, when Deutsche Bank opened an innovation lab in Silicon Valley. Yeah. And the reason why I know about this is because they also opened sort of a bit of it in Singapore. This is what's more important to me. And my feeling on this, just like my feeling on all, all sort of corporate innovation is, it's, it's wrong on so many levels. So if I'm, first of all, if I'm 50 years old, and I've been sitting inside of a bank for 25 years, just like you mentioned, the likelihood that I'm going to understand modern innovation is so close to zero and so far away from one in a binary world that like putting anybody at that stage in charge, is just ridiculous. But that's what they do because that's the new thing. So they put some dude, like you said, in charge, whose only skill over the past 20 years has been just not messing it up and making sure his boss had some warm coffee on himself. <laughs> That's but, but, also, but also the presumption that anybody's going to want to work at this innovation lab or do anything for any corporate innovation lab that any real entrepreneur or anybody with, I'm going to say it, with the balls to like strike out on their own and do mm. something big is going to want to work in the innovation lab of a large company. I, I, I spoke to the guys, again, in Singapore who were running the innovation lab for, or the startup lab, I can't remember what they called it, for Coca-Cola. Right. They came into our office and it was the same thing. And I said, okay, so you're going to innovate in the drink space, right? Mm -hmm. I said, no, no, we can basically do whatever we want. And I said, that's awesome. How much money has been allocated to this innovation thing that you guys are going to do inside of Coca-Cola? You know, nothing. We just have to go into the business heads and ask them how much money they want to put in if we come back with it. And to me, this is just like this whole concept of corporate innovation. the, The reality is that particularly in this region, if they were going to innovate on something, they would have done it already. And the normal guy or gal, right, like your friend in Japan who was an entrepreneur, there's no way they're going to take a job or have a role at Deutsche Bank's innovation lab or, frankly, at Coca-Cola's innovation lab if they're really good innovators. Mm. They're going to innovate on their own. Yeah, 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 exactly. Don't you think? It's a cultural thing, though, isn't it? I mean, 20 years in a bank culturally you must have had some kind of mindset to survive in that environment right right you know that's at odds with the culture of a startup where it's all about making mistakes you know in a bank you can't be making mistakes every day can you you'll be fired yeah i mean we had we we used to file error reports like the whole concept of an error report was so is so alien to me today could you imagine if you're at a startup Right, or you're Travis Kalanick and you're trying to build Uber in Germany or in Tokyo right. 
or in Bangkok, and you make your guys file an error report. Like by the time they're done, <laughs> by the time they're done filing the report, Grab Taxi has just raised another right, two right. billion dollars. That would, that'd be their job, right? Yeah, fair enough. But it's strange, uh, isn't it, how things have changed? I mean, if you go back a couple of generations, even generation and a half, you got the innovation was driven by companies like Xerox or IBM or you know AT and T. These were major innovators, right? But now, these companies can't innovate for toffee, right? They have to... No, no. It all happens in the grassroots, I think. And I think they realize that, don't they? But they can't change it. They do. You're right. That's, that's the problem, right? Is that when they set up these things and they take like, let's have an entrepreneur in residence. Right. I'm yeah. telling you, the guy or the lady that they hire to be the entrepreneur in residence at Pick a Company... I don't care which one it is, HP. I mean, HP's the, the HP that we knew when we were kids is gone, right? Mm. Like that whole concept of innovation is just a big tech services company. But the, the, the person who takes that job has no idea how to innovate because if they did, they'd be at a startup. Mm. Well, what do they, I mean, I see these people who are entrepreneurs in residence. What the hell do these people do? I mean, is that... I know. And the reason why I bring it up is because I was having a conversation actually with one of my most entrepreneurial friends today. Hmm. And he said to me, I'm going to be the entrepreneur in residence at so-and-so place. I don't want to mention what it is. And I said to him, really? Like, what does that mean? What are you going to do there? First of all, those guys, because it's run by guys, right? Hmm. They, they, they don't know the first thing about innovation. Yeah. And... and their particular locale was funded by their parents. So they're not even like risk takers per se. Mm -hmm. You know, so, and uh, the reverse example of this is Uniqlo, right? I forget, what are their names? Izal, I can't remember the names of the guys that run Uniqlo. No. Yeah, well, they're billionaires, right? Well, they're billionaires, but again, like, so you could say the same thing about those guys. Yeah, they just took, we've we've talked about this in in a different context, right? But I just want to be clear about it. You know, you could say these guys took their parents' business and then just ran with it. But the reality is what these guys did is they took a um, a textile manufacturing right, business right. that manufactured cheap textiles and they turned it into a global brand. Mm-hmm. Like, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. So you can't say they just took, like, their mom and dad's business and just kept running with it. I think Ted Turner is another good example that we've used right. in the past. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, when, the- I, when I see people here, like, hiring an entrepreneur in residence – for a business that doesn't create anything, has no product, hmm. it just seems to me to be silly. You know, they're trying to create kind of an incubator there, and I frankly don't think that that is ever going to work in that space. Do you think a lot and, of this stuff, like entrepreneurs and residents, and even like these internal tech accelerator programs, is it a lot PR? Like, it's what CSR once was. I don't know. Corporate government, I don't know, corporate social responsibility. Now they have a commitment to the community, so they're doing incubator programs, or it's good PR for hiring, you know, graduates. I don't know. I don't get it. It just seems to be a PR exercise for a lot of these big companies. Yeah, it really does. And I've, you know, you see this cycle in other businesses when they set up their own like internal investment bank or their own internal venture capital arm, right? Like we'll talk about this on another on another show, but like. Corporate venture capital itself, I think, is something that's really going to end badly, mm. right, for most companies. But we were talking about accelerators, and that was actually one of the one of the things that I wanted to want to cover with you today as well. It was announced this, and this this kind of falls into my category of that's a big surprise. All right, let's do it. We're, we're doing it early this week. It's early, but it's like you you do kind it. of went into it, and I just I just wanted to bring it up. So Singapore Press Holdings had a partnership with something called Plug and Play. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Singapore Press Holding is, is really, it's a, it's a print newspaper company at its core. And what they tried to do was try to mimic and copy an accelerator program that was in San Francisco and try to become part of this whole ecosystem. And they quietly shut down this accelerator, I believe, at the end of last year and finally leaked out the news at the beginning of this year. And, you know, again, what a big surprise. Right, so this is kind of the end of the conversation that we've been developing this entire time. And that is, whether it's Singapore Press Holdings running an accelerator or any other corporate accelerator, the, the, the internal DNA prevents them from actually accelerating anything good because 
for one thing, if it competes with anything that's going on internally that has a legacy system or a bunch of people supporting it from a tech perspective, it's just going to die. Right. So this is a, this is again, another one of those things where it's just not a big surprise to me. And, you know, I, I love the fact that when the original partnership gets announced, right, Singapore press holding invests whatever it gets to do the best learning and all this other noise from plug and play, there's all this hoopla around it. And when it shuts down, it's kind of like someone left a dark room, turned off the light and tried to go home with their shoes off. So nobody heard them walking out. <laughs> so nobody heard them walking out of that building. And I think, if, I think what it means in a way, in a way, like in Southeast Asia, that's really good. Right. I mean, I want to, I want to give this like a positive, positive spin actually, because I think in the United States, whether it's Y Combinator or all these other programs that you see in the United States, all these companies, all these startup companies stress out, try to get in. They try to get, I love the plug and play. You know, you take a startup, you plug it in, you play it, it gets big, everybody gets rich kind of mentality. Mm. But I don't think that's going to work anyway. And I think accelerators as kind of a, as a business plan and as a way to make companies bigger. So again, I just think this whole concept of a corporate accelerator or a company that isn't really in the business of innovating has never really innovated, setting up something that is intended to help other people's innovate it's not a gigantic surprise that they're going to fail. Mm. And it's also not a gigantic surprise that they're going to put their tail between their legs and walk away from it um, after a few years of trying to make it work. The other thing that's really interesting, though, about this story is that that the profits of this company on its own has are now down something like 47% from last year. So the whole thing is in trouble. But I do think this. I think it's really positive, actually, for the whole region that there's a move away from kind of trying to create little pockets of acceleration because I don't think they work anyway. Hmm. Do, do you know what I mean? In other words, I, I don't think you can force innovation to take place, whether it's the Innovation Weekend we were talking about earlier, hmm. which is sponsored by Gel. Um, I don't think it's like the Deutsche Bank thing where let's say you're fintech and you want to get funded. You're not going to take funding from Deutsche Bank, hmm. even if they allocated money to do it, because by definition, it lowers your valuation and it lowers the interest that other companies will have in it because Deutsche or whomever is always going to get first dibs on it. And I think that's uniquely happening out here in Southeast Asia because the companies with all the capital are very concentrated. I think it's really good that a company like Singapore Press Holdings has come out with a lot of um, fanfare when they first announced this partnership, and then they're just quietly shutting it down and walking away. And if you can see the comments that they make, actually, they're kind of positive. I quote, we could see that the ecosystem was expanding very quickly and was becoming very crowded for early stage accelerators. And I would say this. I think it makes more sense if they want to spend money at the early stage to, to actually invest in companies as opposed to trying to build an accelerator, spend money there, and have mentors. I, I, did, I did the same thing you were doing, um, you mentioned earlier. I was talking to a friend of mine about this whole concept of you know, mentoring, and he listed on his webpage all of these people who had been you know, corporate executives and never had anything to do with the startup ecosystem. And I said, that's going to make that guy feel really good about the fact that he's one of your mentors. Hmm. But I think it's going to be actually really good for any of the startups that go and talk to him. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough though, isn't it? I mean, what do you do if you are a, a, I mean, going back to Singapore Press Holdings, I mean, it's great that they're involved. I mean, I imagine the big chunk of their business is print, right? So yep. that they are traditional old school media. I mean, it's great to see them involved in the startup scene. How do they... I mean, I guess what their reason for being involved was strategic. They wanted to have bets on the future of the upside, which they weren't part of, right? You know, they wanted to have, they see their print revenues disappearing. They want to be part of something that's growing. How, how, do, they, how do they do that without creating these, you know, these little internal fiefdoms, these little sort of internal tech worlds, which don't work? What's I the alternative? Fun- yeah, I think fundamentally there were too many players in the print business. And I think that because of that fundamental reason, some of your smaller players are just going to get squeezed out, squozen out anyway. And I don't think there's a lot that that company can do. If you look at some of the larger publications that actually were worthwhile reading, that printed really important stuff, 
The New York Times is a great example of this. Um, early on in their incarnation as a digital publication, they moved into video. They also created a paywall. They apparently, and I was listening to the statistic a month or so ago, so I don't remember off the top of my head, but they apparently make more revenue from their online and their print, I mean, their, their online um, fees than like BuzzFeed and a bunch of other right. companies that apparently are just, you know, not subscription only, but just get paid from, from ads online, right? Mm. The point is that, and getting back to something I like to talk about is if there's compelling content, people are willing to pay for it. It's something that I've been talking about for a long time, right? You go back to um, F. Williams saying, you know, Medium, we're going to change the whole business model because we figured out that just charging for ads in this type of medium is the wrong word, but that that's actually the truth. In that space, isn't going to work, hmm. right? We know that advertising revenue as a as a percentage of overall economy is really only somewhere between two and three percent it's been that way forever it's going to stay that way wherever you get you if you get revenue from advertising you take it away from somebody else um that's not necessarily a bad thing but what it means is that for these really small companies like Sing singapore press holding now that distribution for global print and any kind of media is frictionless it's all the way back to the conversation we were having about YouTube, right? Whenever you build something on YouTube, it now can go global as opposed to just being local. But once that happens, these smaller publications, no matter what they do from their digital innovation side, are just going to go away. And if they don't have the capital to acquire other businesses, right? So let's say a, guy, a new guy like Casey Neistat comes along and just starts producing really interesting content. Mm. Someone's going to go out and buy it. And that's what happened to him recently. But the fact is that he's going to get bought by somebody really big, right? There's, it's, we're not in a situation anymore where SPH or even a company like AOL, which does still exist, yeah, uh, but is a small, a much smaller piece of a much larger company. You know, it tried to do the same thing. It went out and bought the Huffington Post, and it went out and bought TechCrunch, and none of that helped accelerate the growth of either one of those publications. They're probably just about as big as they were when they were acquired. And it probably stunted their growth as opposed to helping it. But just to answer your question, I don't think there's anything to do. I don't think there's anything that these smaller companies can do to, to, to help themselves out in the digital space because they were bound to go away anyway for fundamental reasons. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I think we're probably seeing similar stuff in, in, in Japan as well, no? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we're seeing... It's not a new thing, but certainly over the last 20 years, just a shift to mobile for the consumption of all kinds of media. I mean, it is the sort of the, it's the go-to, it's the starting point for all sort of media consumption, especially for the younger generation. I mean, you just don't see people reading newspapers on the train these days like you used to 20 years ago, right? So, I mean, you no. can, you've seen that shift. So, I mean, content is obviously a big play here and it's been a big play because, I mean, Japan was one of the first to monetize mobile content in the world, right? Yeah. I mean, it got in real early, I mean, with the help of Dokomo. Yep, Dokomo was it, right? Exactly. I mean, it, it was well ahead of the game in 98. So that was back then. But now, well, I mean, you know, I mean, we still have CDs here in Japan. So, you know, I think with all fairness, we have to understand where we are with the media industry. I think it's quite... <laughs> The fact that there are still CDs and they still, I think it's probably one of the only markets in the world where CD sales outsell MP3 or digital sales in music. Is that, is that really true? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's the case today, but it was the case, you know, a year or two ago. So, you know, it's still that market. So it, I think, you know, there's a lot to be said for, you know, conglomerates and oligarchies or, or whatever it is, you know, the these... Monopolies, duopolies of, of media houses, can, you know, cartels working together and preventing innovation. I mean, CDs. When was the last time anybody ever bought a CD? I would like to know. Certainly, you know, please tweet this show. If somebody's bought a CD in the last month, I can't remember. <laughs> exactly. Hashtag Asia Tech Podcast if you've seen anybody buy a CD in like <laughs> five years. Hashtag, oh my God, hashtag, that's insane. Well, probably um, they're outsold. I think vinyl sales now outsell CD sales, don't they? I mean, that's where we are right now. I mean, it's... 
<laughs> you you know it's the case where like I mean you know this in Tokyo right there's there are plenty of bars where it's vinyl only and the yeah. owners are really um, proud of the fact that it's vinyl only but nobody has a CD only bar yeah because it was not cool <laughs> and right it's a good indication of where things stand from an innovation standpoint right um, anyway I wasn't too surprised to see that happen and the the other the good thing though that did come out of all the stuff that we're looking at this week is that there are a lot of people paying attention to what's going on in Southeast Asia. If you mm-hmm. look at the crowd of people that participated in Innovation Weekend um, in Japan, as much as we were talking about it as a little bit of silliness, the people that were there were from a far afield. And that in and of itself is actually really, really good. Mm-hmm. Really, really good. And, and I've actually seen that myself actually over the past month or so, that people are starting to contact me from outside the country trying to find out what's going on in Southeast Asia. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that going forward. And, you know, whether we get back to what we talked about at the beginning as to whether there will be another Silicon Valley in Southeast Asia, the answer to that, the short answer is there won't be. And the long answer is we don't care. Um, And the second thing is, will the innovation that happens in this region be driven by, you know, accelerators? I don't think so. And also, will the corporations have a big say in it? You know, you're seeing them here, the corporate accelerators, or even just the corporate venture capitalists, you're seeing them try to get involved. But what I, when I talk to entrepreneurs here, I caution them. I don't tell them what to do necessarily, but I caution them necessarily about taking advice, as you said, from someone who's been sitting in a corporate job for 20 years because they don't understand that type of development, first of all. Hmm. But second of all, to be wary of an investment as well from an individual company in a very directed sector because it, I don't want to say ruins, but it, it kind of takes away a lot of the enthusiasm that other companies will have for investing in you because they don't want to invest with their competitors. I think that's still really true. And I think that that's part of what killed what happened over at SPH is that people don't want to invest in companies that are invested in by large corporations. I think the same thing will happen to the Coca-Cola people in Singapore, and that definitely is going to happen to um, to the Innovation Lab at, at Deutsche Bank. I, I'd be surprised, actually, if that's still around in five years because I don't see anything viable coming out of it. And the people that they've put there to run it are very nice people and were potentially very good at their jobs at Deutsche Bank, but I don't think any, any of that translates into innovation at any level. True. Well, what's the future going to look like, Michael? I mean, if we're going to shift away from this sort of top-down accelerator style innovation what is it going to look like especially here in asia in the next five years where's the shift going to happen well the shift is going to happen when the second generation we're starting to see this already it's a great question actually we're starting to see it already what's going to happen is and shift is actually a great word a great choice of words on your part Um, and i think it's just a coincidence essentially what's going to happen is you're going to see a ground root swell of high net worth individuals and angel investors, very similar to what you saw years ago in all the places where these new companies start up. And they're, they're going to innovate. What they're going to do is they're going to be the next generation of, of people that are money managers here, meaning they're managing money for their families. And they're going to say, if we're going to change the DNA inside of our family or in, inside of our companies, it's going to have to happen in a way that's completely separate. And the best way to do it is in size. What does that mean? I believe really strongly that it means that this is going to start, like I said, at grassroots. You're going to get some very wealthy and very um, motivated and smart people together, groups of 25, groups of 30. You can call them a syndicate if you'd like. And they are going to try to plug themselves in to this entrepreneurial ecosystem. And I think this works, actually. And the reason why is because they're motivated to outperform the previous generation, first of all. Second of all, they're at the same stage of life that some of these entrepreneurs are as well. So they can easily identify. And some of them feel like they're really under pressure to create something big. And even if they can't execute it on themselves, if they have decent ideas, the entrepreneurs will um, move towards them. And they understand that not everything's going to succeed. You know, again, if you go to pick a company in in Thailand, the central group, and say, I want to make an investment in a startup risky company, They'll probably going to say in the end, they'll say, we'll consider it, we'll think about it, it'll go through some committee, and in the end, they'll say, if you can't guarantee me a 14.5% return over the next five years, I'm not going to do it. 
But if you take money out of it, give it to you know a child or a grandchild, and he does it with 20 of his other peers, you're going to end up with a decent amount of capital. Let's call it somewhere between 30 and 60 million dollars, and they're going to start systematically investing in companies, and that's your next level of leadership because. What it means is that as some of these old line family businesses start to fade away, right? And in a way, Bronfman, I don't know if you remember Edgar Bronfman, who was part of the Seagram's family, right? Mm -hmm. He basically sold the entire spirits company, took all that money and bought into entertainment. At the time, his family was not that happy about it. But in the end, he actually made a good decision. This was 15 or 20 years ago. And I think some of that is going to happen here. You can have old line business runners say to their kids, don't come into this business, take some capital, separate yourself completely. That's the key. And take risk with a group of your peers so it's mitigated in a way that makes sense and build something new and big. And I'm already starting to see that happen. Um, We could spend an entire show talking about that, but that's what I think the future is for now in this region. It's very different than an accelerator program and it's very different than corporations trying to control or get involved in innovation because what happens is if you take you know pick any five people you want but they're going to come from different businesses and different perspectives and that's actually almost like building a venture capital company out of nowhere and i think that's going to end up being really powerful that's where i think things are going to go and it's a really great question actually that's very interesting. Compared to a VC fund, they're probably more aggressive as well, aren't they? I mean, I imagine they're, even though it's their own money, I can imagine they're a lot more involved and they have a lot more to offer than simply being a partner, right? These guys are entrepreneurs. They've grown up from the cradle as entrepreneurs, right, around their family. Yeah, and, and, and Vent, I'm not convinced of a bunch of things, but one of them is that I'm not convinced that a venture capital fund is the best way to invest in new and small businesses. Right, because if you think about the structure of a normal fund, five and two, seven and three, meaning, you know, the fund needs to start paying people back after five years. So there's an incentive to there's an incentive to sell or to find a buyer or to find a way to increase evaluation. Maybe it takes more than three to five years to build a company. Maybe we're not at a stage anymore where the startup world as a whole is so frothy that you can build a company in three years and sell it for a billion dollars. And I'm not saying that that means that that won't happen, but I think it's gonna get rarer and rarer. And I think what happens when you create a structure like this is you build patience into the company building Hmm. engine. And when that happens, I think you actually end up building better companies. Remember, in Southeast Asia in particular, there there are a lot of market gaps. There are gaps that, not that people wanna fill, but that need to get filled. Right. So electronic payments was one of those gaps for a while. Now that gap is starting to get filled. There are a few different companies doing it. And there are other gaps similar to that logistics, which we've already spoken about in a previous show. Um, And we could spend more time doing it. But that's why I think that that style of investing. Right. Mm -hmm. Is not going to necessarily mimic what happened in Silicon Valley or the rest of the world. Remember as well that those people don't want to pay fees either. They think they can manage the money better than you, but they also also are very good, and I've seen this actually directly, they're very good at saying, I don't want to give you my money and have you manage it, but every decent deal that you give me, you'll get a piece of the upside if we end up investing. Yeah. And in the end, that's the better model because that, to me, is very familiar to an Uber driver who doesn't buy a medallion, just downloads the app, He only gets paid when he drives, doesn't have to drive when he doesn't want to. This is the new economy, the new way of working. And I think it's a new way of investing as well. I'd love to see, again, from from the investor's perspective, I'd love to see good, high-quality deal flow, but I'm not going to pay you until I do see it. Mm. It's kind of a pay-as-you-go system, right? I mean, this is the classic freemium model. I'm willing to pay you for great stuff, but I'm not willing to pay you when you don't deliver me anything. And that's okay. And I think that's the structure that this is going to take. That would be awesome, especially here yeah. in Asia. I mean, exciting. I think that, you know, maybe it will happen in Asia because it's not Silicon Valley, right? It doesn't have that legacy. No. Nope. And remember, when all the innovation started in the United States, like in the 70s and even in the early 80s, 
you know, there wasn't as much money sloshing around the system, yeah. so people had to go out and raise. And and again, it looks like the 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 venture capital business doesn't look that much different, except maybe for time frame from the hedge fund business and vice versa, hmm. right? Give me ten million dollars, pay me a two percent management fee, and I'll give you eighty percent of the upside. I'll take twenty percent. But if you lose my money, you don't owe me anything. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, look. There's so much to cover. We could. I feel like we could end up talking about this forever. But let's um, let's say goodnight. It's getting late for you. It's good. Yeah. No, that was a good chat. We covered everything: innovation, investment, and we got more to do. Right. I mean, next time. There's one thing we didn't talk about, but we'll maybe talk about that next time or in a future episode. And just sort of Tell following me. on from that. Tell me. You know that. What is exciting about everything we talked about tonight? I just wanted to throw in. A, but we haven't had some data tonight. I've got to throw in some data, Michael. Tell me. Top five countries in terms of ease of doing business, according to the World Bank. Top five countries, all four of the top five countries come from the Asian Pacific region. Yeah, I mean, I have that data as well. They, they do, don't they? We've got New, well, New Zealand, New Zealand, yep. Singapore, Hong Kong, Korea. I mean, think about it. Yep. Combine that with what we just talked about tonight. That's exciting because, you know, exactly. if you talk about these people walking around with money to invest, you know, they're going to go where their money gets treated well, right? Yeah. Yeah, and you, you do realize, and we can look at the news, but I was looking at the FT yesterday. China has now imposed a sort of kind of capital controls flown out of the country. It's making it much more difficult for banks to help individuals take money out of China. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean for them as investors in the rest of the world? I, I don't know. There are ways to do it, but you, the fees are high. You have to pay something like 3% fees, and some of it has to go through back doors to happen. Mm. But you're right. I think in places where it's easy to do business, easy to put your money in and take your money out, those are the places that are going to flourish. And yeah, a lot of them are in Asia. So I, I agree. Excellent. Hey, Michael. Good talking to you. Always a pleasure, Graham. AsiaTechPodcast.com. Where do we get in touch if you want to reach out and talk to us? Well, I mean, Michael Waits. Michael Waits on Twitter. So it's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-W-A-I-T-Z-E. Hashtag Asia Tech Podcast. Always willing to hear. And um, the website. give us a tweet and follow up on it. And the website is asiatechpodcast.com. Look for us on iTunes as well. Subscribe. Get in line because people are starting to subscribe in droves. That's right. Line up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Michael. Catch you next week. Hey, hey Graham. Yeah. I might. Yeah, definitely look forward to talking to you next week. I may be in Tokyo. Awesome. Let's hook up. We could do it. We could do a live event there right we could do a live cast podcast we should do that we should get together sit around and maybe um maybe get one other person involved but i think it'd be great if we could do this uh face to face awesome awesome i'll talk to you later